This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. We're just the catch-all for people. And we can't say no, and we don't say no. We want people to come to us if they're having a psychiatric emergency, 100%. But our doors don't close. They don't close for psychiatric patients, and they don't close for medical patients. And there's times where we can't get out of our own way as far as being able to provide good care for everybody. That's an emergency room nurse here in a hospital in Vermont. I've heard it said that if you want to get to know your town, visit your local emergency room. Rich and poor, young and old, most of us have ended up in the emergency room at one time or another. But over the last few years, there's been a huge spike in one particular segment of the population visiting the ER. People having mental health crises are visiting emergency rooms in record numbers. People who are suicidal, homicidal, psychotic. People in desperate need of treatment. But ER nurses are not trained to treat people with mental illness, and the departments are not designed to comfort, to calm, or to keep people safe from themselves or others. And though most people suffering from a mental health crisis are not dangerous or disruptive, some are. You know, our, our department gets very loud sometimes when we have these double-digit numbers of people who are having psychiatric crises. Um, There is a lot of yelling often, whether it's yelling because they're angry at us, whether it's yelling because they're yelling at voices in their own head, it gets loud. It gets to the point where we have to, you know, figure out where we're going to put a six-month-old baby who's there for a medical complaint when there's psychiatric crisis people kind of all over our department. Um, You know, we have two rooms that are designated for psych patients in our department, two. And um, often, like I said, we have 10 or more patients who are requiring a long time stay in rooms that aren't appropriate for them, that we do have to put medical patients next to. And we do have to care for a six-month-old who's there for a fever right next to a patient who is hearing voices, who is homicidal, who is suicidal, who has a sitter with them. Um, And that gets loud um, and it gets scary. There was a, a female patient in the rooms right in front of the nurse's station and um, there was a gentleman walking by with his little six-year-old and um, she came out of the room stark naked and was like playing with her breast and screaming at the little boy come over here I'm gonna cut your dick off the father was like furious understandably but and, you know, the little boy was, like, in tears, absolutely in tears. He thought this person was coming to get them, you know. Yeah. This problem is not unique to Vermont. In fact, it's an acute problem all over the country. But if you talk with most anyone working in emergency rooms in this state, they'll tell you that the problem got a whole lot worse when the Vermont State Psychiatric Hospital in Waterbury closed in 2011. In 2014, Vermont opened a new state hospital with only a fraction of the beds. The idea was to open smaller inpatient care facilities around the state. The difference is, where the state hospital in Waterbury was required to take people in need of inpatient care, these smaller inpatient settings are not, for lots of reasons. In a smaller facility, there's less staff, and getting the right balance of personalities is important for patient progress. But that means that people arriving to the ER with acute mental health crises are often staying in the ER, sometimes living in the ER for days or weeks, waiting for placement, mostly confined to their rooms, under constant supervision, and without real treatment. 
This is not a show that explores where the problem came from or where the solution might lie. That's for a future episode. This show is what it looks like right now in emergency rooms across the state. I interviewed nine nurses and one sheriff in three settings, in one of the state's biggest hospitals, a medium-sized hospital, and a small community hospital. I'm not revealing the names of the hospitals or the nurses' names because they wanted to remain anonymous and I wanted them to speak as freely as they could. Fair warning, some of the stories in this show might not be great for kids. Welcome. It's a challenge to switch between the kind of mind frame and understanding that best serves somebody who's coping with a a mental health condition and someone who's coping with a physical health condition or an end-of-life process. And I did have an evening once where I had was taking care of somebody with, you know, an unstable stable psychiatric condition and a family in end-of-life, coping, you know, whose, whose family member was dying. So I was going back and forth between the family whose family member was dying and was in hospice care in our facility and the patient who was having a um, sort of a behavioral manifestation of their mental health issue that needed to be addressed. And having to make that transition from one person to the other, both of them patients I was taking care of, was a real challenge. To be what I needed to be, where I needed to be for that patient in the span of just walking across the unit was I mean, we do the best we can, but it does, you know, you walk away from that feeling like, did I meet the needs I needed to? And you just feel quite depleted. I'm a lieutenant with the Sheriff's Department, Caledonia County Sheriff's Department. I'm in the room a lot of the times when they are being told, you wait here for mental health to come here. Um, We're going to medically clear you, but you may be here for weeks because you're going to be warehoused here till mental health comes in every day and calls these hospitals to see if there's a room available for you to go to. You're spending million plus dollars a year paying sheriff's departments to watch mental health people in hospitals. It's given out to sheriff's departments to come in and stand guard at a door. They cannot leave the room they have the bathroom there, and they get the meals brought in, this and that. So basically, they're, they're, they're a prisoner in those rooms. Yesterday, for instance, I had to sit at the door in the ER of one of the rooms to make sure this guy didn't come out of the room. He was kind of ramping up, they call it. Um, some ramp up out of frustration. If someone, some ramp up because they're sitting in a room for six days, which you and I would do the same thing with no mental health issues. We'd probably have a mental health issue after sitting in a room for five or six days and not be able to come out. So even people with semi-acute or acute mental illness, they realize that they're in a room and not being helped and they're being told to stay in this room and don't come out. And we do have to restrain patients, and it's very unfortunate. But you have to look at the safety of the staff and you have to also consider the safety of that patient. So imagine that you're a person who's having a psychotic break and you have lost complete control of yourself. And the only way for the people around you and for yourself to be safe is to be strapped to a bed in four-point restraints. Those restraints um, are removed when the nurse or the provider deem it safe for that patient. 
sometimes we'll have patients, unfortunately, in restraints for an entire day before they feel like they're safe to come out. I've had patients in the past that will will start to act out, and they'll go and they'll lay down, and they'll ask to be put in restraints because they know what's coming, and they don't want to do it, and they feel the only way to be safe is to be in restraints because they don't want to hurt people. It's not their intention. But the voices are telling them to hurt people. There's a patient in one room who was in with an, a, a medical issue of some sort. I think she had a, had a surgery of some sort and was recovering from that. And then we had another person who was in for a psychiatric health issue. And her um, condition, she was very, she was unstable in that moment. And she was coping with what she was coping with, with, with outbursts of behavior, sort of uncontrolled behavior. And she was coming out in the hall and she was yelling profanity and, and kind of walking around. And so the situation around her, with the help of the sheriff and the staff, were able to contain that situation and ultimately kind of keep everybody safe. But for the person in the room next door who had was kind of confined to her bed by her condition, she was terrified by what she was overhearing. To her, a hospital should be a safe place where you come to recover. And what she's hearing outside her room is not that different from what she's hearing on the television and the news. And she was terrified. Um, so. I, as the nurse, advocating for both of these people who are both my patients, um, is kind of caught in the middle of how do I provide the best care for what each of these people need. And feeling really at the crux of this setting is not offering what the person with a psychiatric health needs. So part of the struggle for, that I sense for many of my colleagues is that the struggle of feeling like we don't have to offer what it is these people need. And I think we're all doing the best we can with what we have in place. We had a gentleman recently who was here for three weeks, at least three weeks. He was voluntary. Um, he was depressed. They felt that he needed to be hospitalized and he was willing to be hospitalized. But most of the hospitals didn't feel like he met criteria for hospitalization and they get to decide that. We can present them to Brattleboro and Rutland and every place else, but those hospitals decide whether they meet criteria for hospitalization and they didn't really feel that he met criteria, but he didn't feel safe going home and so he was just here day after day after day after day after day. That's really frustrating. So day after day after day after day, this person's here and where am I going? And you know, how come nobody wants me? And why can't I get help? And they're not getting it here. They aren't getting therapy. They aren't having groups. They see the psychiatrist, but it's once, maybe twice a day for a few moments. They aren't getting any of the other things that they would be getting from an inpatient hospitalization. So it's no better than if we had a, had a stall for horses. They have food, water, and shelter. And uh, there you go. One patient that does stick in my mind was an autistic boy that we had uh, who was here at least a month, I want to say. This little boy was eight or nine years old. I don't remember all of the exact details. But basically, his parents didn't feel safe caring for him at home anymore. He was getting bigger. Um, he was getting physically violent with them. 
and they felt like he wasn't safe and like they weren't safe and so they brought him here not i'm sure they did not anticipate that their son was going to be holding in an emergency department for weeks without a chance to play outside with nothing you know nothing routine happening here but there was no place for him to go because he had psychiatric problems and medical problems and no one in the state felt comfortable caring for him so he stayed here (laughs) and he eventually did get a bed at i believe brattleboro retreat but it took a really long time and it took a lot of pushing on his parents part and not all patients have an outside support system like this little boy did his parents cared they were educated they knew to reach out to the right people to get the right things for their son whereas the psychiatric patients that are lacking education and uh, family support or any sort of outside support they do sometimes tend to sit here a little longer i've had children as young as six years old i have several kids between like 8 and 14 that come in on a pretty regular basis um, with depression, some of them suicidal, some of them homicidal. Some of their issues are certainly psychiatric issues. Some of their issues are social issues. And again, there's the only place available for them is Brattleboro. There's not a lot of beds for them down there. Washington County does a fantastic job, but they only can do so much. And, um, you know, when I have 70, 80-year-old people come in who have had psychiatric illnesses their whole lives, and now they're at a point where they need nursing home care, but nursing homes don't want to take anybody that have any kind of significant psych diagnoses because they don't have the ability to take care of them. So now what do you do with them? Some of them stay up on two south for months. Can you say what that is? Two South is the medical surgical floor here. So they'll stay here for months and months and months. So if you look at a whole popula- population of people coping with mental health, not they're, the ones that kind of stand out in your mind may be the ones that were having the, the violent outburst that caused such distress in the room next door. I mean, that raises your adrenaline and is its own thing to cope with. But then there are also the people that come in with depression or significant mental health suffering that doesn't necessarily have violent outburst or it's not it doesn't extend outside the room and yet it still is challenging that the feeling of that we're not offering them what they need and feeling like it's there that they're just kind of on hold is i find difficult because they deserve better than that No, the vast majority is not aggressive necessarily, and the vast majority doesn't want to hurt me or others. Um, often they're there because they want to hurt themselves. Often they're there because they're depressed and they are, you know, quiet and calm. And but we do get patients who are very aggressive. We do get patients who are there for a psychiatric hold because they've, you know, kind of not in control. But uh, specifically, we've had I've had a full urinal thrown at me more than once, surprisingly. <laughs> um, And people do, as far as aggressive goes, people who have known communicable diseases have deliberately spit in my face. And this all comes down to because we are holding people in a place where they don't want to be. Even though they came to us asking for help, 
this is the way we have to provide that help, and this is what's pissing them off, and this is what's making them angry. Most of the danger to staff at this hospital is on the second floor, mid-surge, where they're waiting for a room longer than the day, day or two. We've had staff with broken jaws upstairs, and I'm talking within the last year, bruising, spitting, kicked, bit, hit, and I try to calm down and physically remove that person. I'm talking about the mental health patient. Physically remove that person from the situation that's going in that room back to his bed. Um, the doctor will say whether they authorize restraints or not. Sometimes they're not needed. Sometimes as soon as they get back at the bed, they, they're all right for a while. But we have a certain person that we've been doing this scenario with coming up on a year. So that means that he's been upstairs in a hospital, a medical surgical unit for nearly a year getting no mental health treatment? That's correct. There um, is a patient that's been here at our facility for over six months. Um, I don't know if you can imagine being in the same room every day, confined to a room with people watching you um, from the outside where you can't even go to the bathroom without somebody watching you. This particular patient sometimes will take his medications and sometimes will not. He's probably the toughest case we've seen. Um, and there are certain people that I, in particular, cannot work with this patient. He Something about my stature, my hair or something, he just doesn't like. And he always will go to attack me when I go into his room. What does that mean to be attacked? Can you give me a, an example of what that charging, is? Charging at you to physically harm you. This, this particular patient has struck several nurses sending several to the emergency room where they've had to have CAT scans. He punched one of the LNAs two weeks ago. He will throw his feces at you. He will try to smear his feces on you. You know, you hear his alarm going off in his room, and you know you got to put on a different face and go in and deal with whatever he has to give you, whether that be a smile and a good conversation or whether that he, he hands you his excrement. Did you think this was what you were getting into? No. No. Nobody goes to nursing school and nobody decides to become a nurse because they think they're going to get full urinals thrown at their faces um, by somebody who you're holding against their will. That's not, that's not how Florence Nightingale intended it, right? Like that's, not, <laughs> that's not how it's meant to be. Um, but have I worked in this department now for six years and I still go every single day knowing that this is what my day is probably going to look like? I mean, yes, I'm doing this on purpose, right? You know, it kind of comes down to somebody has to. I have the skill and ability to the best of my skill and ability. Um, am I a psychiatric nurse? Absolutely not. We take care of brand new babies. We take care of old folks. We take care of the whole gamut in between. But we are not trained to be psychiatric nurses. That's a whole different, you know, level of specialty. Um, we're getting training on dealing with psychiatric patients because that's, you know, our new normal. But can we give that the same attention we do as critical care nursing? No. And I know that our patients leave us feeling they didn't get great care, and they leave us with us feeling like we didn't give great care. And that's a pretty terrible feeling for all of us. We beg mental health people when they come to assess a person, can you please look for cadres to watch them? Can you please try to get Lamoille County Sheriff's here to watch them? Well, we'll try, but if they don't have anybody, well, they're basically saying they're in the hospital, they're safe, but basically what they're saying is, you got them, I'll let you know when there's an opening. They come every morning, sometimes later than we like in the day, to call the hospitals. They call all the hospitals. Do you have an opening yet? Do you have an opening yet? Do you have an opening yet? They get no, 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 no. They might get a yes. Then after they get the yes, 
but what do you got? Then they have to sell that person. They have to sell that person to the receiving place, and they make the last decision. When you say that the mental health people come every day, are you talking about the screeners, or who are screeners, you talking about? Screeners. Okay. The poor screeners, and I mean overworked poor screeners that come in here, that look at them all, call all hospitals for all of them, praying that they get a yes out of somebody, and if not, they'll maybe come, try to come back before the shift ends and ask it again, but nothing happens at night, they'll come back in the morning. I'll try in the morning. I'll try in the morning. So I have an 11-year-old out there for an eval, so um, he'll be coming back to you when they get him, get him taken care of. All right, thanks. When AIDS was first discovered, nobody really thought it was a big deal. It's just a homosexual group, you know, what do we care? It's just the homosexuals. It didn't really start to affect people, and I didn't really start to take it seriously, unfortunately, until it started to spill over into the heterosexual community, let's be honest. Nobody really wanted to deal with it. So I think that because people don't understand that this is truly a crisis and it's only going to get significantly worse, they don't want to deal with it. I got all these other things on my plate right now, and that's such a big thing. It's kind of like healthcare reform. It's such a big thing that it's insurmountable, and so if I just close my eyes, it won't be there. And we've closed our eyes for way too long on this. We are not handling it. We're not handling it well. So we're just sticking our fingers in the dike. You ask if I am angry. I don't find myself feeling angry anger per se, I just find myself more just so aware of how big a problem it is and aware of how complicated it is to address. So I guess that leads me to compassion both for the people who are suffering with the illness itself, the people that are suffering as caregivers who feel inadequate about it, the institutions that are trying to figure out a way to address this and yet the resources are not available and the people who are making decisions about allocating resources who have multiple you know multiple issues trying to draw on them and them having to make those decisions and we're kind of all in we're we're all in it so how do we as a community rethink it so that the end of the road for the people that I take care of day in and day out so that that there's some way to alleviate the suffering that they have to cope with because there's just nothing else for them Outside of hospital world, do people know what's going on? Yeah, I mean, we're pretty vocal about it. Uh, there was a whole mental health summit, and a lot of people spoke. You know, emergency physicians talking about the whole crisis. The you know psychiatric physicians talking about how terrible it is. Um, but you know, we don't hear anything about it after that. For the people who who are hearing the stories, for the people who have to hear these stories to actually make change, I don't know how to sit at their big mahogany desks and actually let them know what reality looks like. It seems like it's gotten to the point where we've been talking about this long enough that the conversation is only to appease the people being affected and not to affect any real change. Like, yes, see, we're talking about it. Do you see we're doing something about it? We are having mental health summits. We are having meetings. We are talking about it. But I'm still going to go to work on Sunday and potentially get punched or potentially have half of my general treatment side be filled with patients that um, should be somewhere else getting better care. And then potentially have 10 people in the waiting room who can't be seen because of those patients.
I, I think we all, I mean, I hear, you know, I turn on the radio or open the paper, whatever, mental health, the problems with mental health. I mean, I hear it all the time, but then I change the channel. Uh, on some level, I don't think we care that much, and I don't really know why. Do you really want people to be dying under bridges because you turn the channel? Think about that. Because that's what happens. They live in homeless encampments and then they get beaten to death and because they have mental health issues and, and nobody cares because they turn the channel. And Your elderly parent who becomes demented or has Alzheimer's and you can't care for them anymore. Too bad. There's no place for them to go because the nursing homes don't want them. Especially if they have any violent tendencies. They're not taking them. So you're stuck with them. Better figure it out. You know, you have a, a child that suddenly, at, at 21, a beautiful rising star young man has a psychotic break because now he's schizophrenic. Figure it out. He's yours. Deal with it. It's, there's got to be somebody there to help people with that burden. And I have a huge concern that there is going to be terrible things that happen because we've t chosen to turn the channel or pretend like it's not as bad as everybody says it is. You know, there is gonna be the the shooter or the somebody who walks down the streets in Barry or Montpelier and stabs someone. There was somebody, mental health patient who stabbed somebody in Montpelier just a couple months ago. I mean, it's gonna get worse. We like to pretend like we live in this idyllic little state, but the rest of the big bad world is coming to Vermont. You better deal with it. You've been listening to emergency room nurses, medical surgical unit nurses, and a sheriff, all working in the state of Vermont. If you have a comment on the show, I would love to hear it. Other people, I'm sure, would also love to hear it. Comments are part of the point. You can find a comment box at the bottom of the show page on my website, rumblestripvermont.com. I want to thank Salim Chowdhury for all of his help on this show, also Tobin Anderson and the people at Washington County Mental Health. And most of all, I want to thank all of the people who gave me such generous time for the interviews. I also want to thank everyone who has made a donation to this show. These donations are important. They pay for gas and for time. If you want to make a donation, I would be grateful. You can find a green donate button on the top right-hand corner of my website. Again, that's rumblestripvermont.com. This is Rumblestrip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>